Uh, I forgot to uh, let folks know that if you're visiting us uh, in person, uh, we have a uh, welcome slip for you to fill out. Uh, to ask that you please fill that out and drop it in the offering place in the back of the sanctuary back there. Um, or if you're online, um, if you're on our Facebook page, there's a link there that you can you can click on and fill that out and uh, it just gives you a little digital card to your smartphone um, or to your computer or whatever it might be. But if you do that, then, then we'll have a record of your visit if you're visiting us online. Or you can always text the word hello to 309-328-3488. Again, that's word hello to 309-328-3488 and it'll automatically follow up with you. Uh, so just uh, want to encourage you to do that and, and make use of that. Or you can just send a text message to that and I'll know that you were there because I'll see this random person text that. So anyway, uh, just to uh, make you aware of that. So this morning, uh, done a little bit of a, of a different message, a little bit of a different Easter message. Some of y'all may look at, at the wrath of God is satisfied and wonder what in the world uh, kind of Easter message is this. And, uh, and then you perhaps look that we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, and uh, it gets your wheels turning, and uh, you're thinking, you know, what is going on here? I thought, I thought that this was a Baptist church, you know, aren't we supposed to have this resurrection sermon and, and this sort of thing? I really want to encourage you uh, that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday that we come in here, the whole point of gathering together on Sunday morning is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every single Sunday morning that we gather. And so sometimes we, we put all this effort into, uh, into Easter Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We should be putting that same effort in every single Sunday because every single Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the first church started to gather on Sunday morning. Uh, to celebrate the resurrection. So I want to encourage you in that direction to maybe have that thought process uh, every time, every time you get to come to church on Sunday morning. You should be excited every Sunday, just like it's Easter Sunday. <laughs> you should, I can't wait to get to church and hear God's word and, and sing and, and praise God. That, that really should be our attitude. And uh, with that said, this will still be an Easter sermon. Listen up, maybe you'll be surprised. So what we're going to look at in a few minutes is 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, if you want to find your way there, it is in the Bible app, and, and uh, as well as on our website, that sort of thing. April 1st, 2003, Jessica Lynch her helicopters and gunfire from her hospital bed. Her first reaction was not happiness, but it was fear. She thought for sure Iraqi soldiers were there to kill her, but it was U.S. soldiers there to rescue her. You see, it was on March 23rd, 2003, just days after the U.S. invaded Iraq. Lynch was riding in a supply convoy with her unit when her unit took a wrong turn and was ambushed by Iraqi forces near Nasiriyah. Eleven American soldiers died. Four others besides Lynch were captured. Her rescue brought joy and relief to Americans. It is always tragic when people are held captive by an evil enemy that finds pleasure in torturing and destroying them. This is why our joy overflows whenever we see captives that are set free. The Bible tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. 
According to John chapter 8, verse 44, he is a murderer by nature and intends to destroy those that he holds captives. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He does that by rescuing people from Satan's domain of darkness and then transferring them to his kingdom where they have redemption and forgiveness of sins, according to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Here is what we must understand. God uses us, those that are his people, those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. He uses us to go into enemy territory, behind enemy lines, if you will, with the powerful weapon of the gospel of Jesus Christ to liberate those who are being held captive by the evil enemy. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul did in the city of Thessalonica. He came under enemy attack, but was able to rescue some. The daring mission of Paul set the city in an, in an uproar. They accused him and his co-workers as being men who had turned the world upside down. Paul was forced to leave and just, after just a few weeks of ministry in Thessalonica, where the newly liberated people would face the angry opposition of those who were content with their former evil regime. A short time later, Paul writes them a letter, which is the letter that we have in our Bible known as 1 Thessalonians. So I would ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of the respect for God's word as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verses 9 and 10 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. May it penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. Lord, for the person that's here that already knows Christ as our Savior, may it penetrate our hearts and may we be motivated that we are part of God's plan to rescue the perishing. And for those that may not know Christ, maybe they're listening online, maybe they will stumble across this message later. Lord, would you use your word to penetrate their hearts and lives, to reveal to them that one day your wrath will be poured out on all those who deny Christ. Speak to us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Paul begins the whole letter of Thessalonians by thanking God for what he had done in these people's hearts and by commending them for the example of their transformed lives, which was being spoken of everywhere in that region. Before Paul could say anything, people would tell him how the Thessalonians had turned to God from serving their Idols. They had turned from their false gods to the one true God. Here is the point 
of today's message and this not-so-typical Easter sermon. The risen Christ satisfies, satisfies God's wrath and offers salvation to all who believe in him. I'm going to break that statement down into three vital lessons for us this morning. Lesson number one, point number one, there is a certain wrath to come. There is a certain wrath to come. Let me say at the outset that I know the idea of God's wrath and God's judgment uh, are not, they're not very popular in our day and age, even among Christians. We would rather tell people that God loves them and that God has a wonderful plan for their life. And the notion that God is angry with people because of their sin is actually downright. Often the idea that anyone faces any kind of horrible eternal punishment in hell if they die without being reconciled to God, that's just completely ignored. And if we're honest, most of us would admit that the idea of God's wrath and eternal punishment is a little bit embarrassing. And it's hard to talk about. So we don't talk about it. We dodge it. We promote, uh, we promote the gospel as a great way to have a happier life. But when we do this, we misinterpret the biblical gospel. We water down the biblical picture of salvation as God's rescuing us from a certain destruction. And it becomes more like starting a new diet or exercise program, right? You ever started one of those? It's guaranteed to make you feel better right away. You know, like when I, if I start running 10 miles tomorrow, I'll feel better right away. No. If I start my diet, I will lose weight right away. No. It doesn't work that way. And when we make the gospel all about how you're going to feel better, it doesn't work that way either. Our text reveals to us, under this heading of there's a certain wrath to come, it reveals to us that this wrath is to come because the character of God assures it. Because the character of God assures it. Notice that Paul declares that God is the living and true God, and Jesus rescues us from the wrath that is to come. He gives us a further description of this wrath in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, where he declares, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. During his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ spoke more about the awfulness of God's judgment than any other person in the entire Bible. He described it as a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. He calls it a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in Mark chapter 9, verse 48. He said that it would be better off to cut off one's hand or your foot or, or even to die by having a millstone hung around your neck and being cast into the sea than to go into hell in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 and 45. We may not like those words. They're hard words. But if we deny them or we dodge them, we're not following Jesus who repeatedly taught this terrifying truth. Now when we think of God's wrath, we can't really compare it to human wrath. Mainly because human wrath is, is usually an outburst against something, right? That's, that's, what, that's how human wrath starts. 
someone frustrates us and we have an outburst. They're going to feel my wrath, right? That's our attitude. You ever be dri been driving down the road and someone cuts you off, right? And you, and you just, you go into rage. Well, I can't believe, what, what are they doing? Human wrath. Now, we can have righteous indignation, but even when we have righteous indignation, it's colored with our own fallible propensity towards selfishness and misunderstanding. God's wrath is not that way. It is a holy wrath. It is settled. It is active. It's, it's a settled, active opposition towards evil, which is in line with his absolute knowledge of all motives and all circumstances. If we do away with the concept of God's wrath, then we are forced to do away with the concept of God's holiness and God's justice. There is a certain wrath to come. Secondly, we all have not... Uh, all who have not trusted in the risen Christ are in imminent danger. All who have not trusted in the risen Christ are in imminent danger. By our very nature, we tend to look at our own works or what we might consider to be our good intentions, and we conclude that we're good enough for heaven. The, the Bible makes it clear that no one gets into heaven by their own efforts, their own good works, or their own good intentions. Our problem is that we compare ourselves to the wrong standard. You see, we become masters of comparing ourselves to other people. And when we do that, we think, well, I look pretty good compared to that person. However, God's standard is absolute holiness, which begins on our thought level. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever been angry with someone, you're guilty of murder. If you've lusted after a woman, you're guilty of adultery. Both these sins make you guilty enough to go to hell. Let's just assume for one moment that you are an unusually good person. That's a lot of assuming for me. But for you, you're an unusually good person. You've perhaps only committed one sin per a month by the time you're five years old. If you talk back to your mother once that month, the rest of the month, you were a little angel who thought only loving thoughts towards your mom. If you selfishly demanded your way, you only did it once per month. You did not think selfishly any other time. If that was your record, by the time you were 75 years old, you would have committed 840 sins. Now let's say you had to go to court. You walk in to the judge, you plead with the judge, Judge, I will readily admit I have broken the law only 840 times. <laughs> but I am far better than most people that you will find out there. You should just let me off. We stand no chance of acquittal based upon our good deeds. When we stand before God, who is the Holy Judge, his standard is absolute perfection. The Bible declares that we are all by our very nature children of wrath because of our sins. It warns that the wrath of God abides on all who 
do not obey the Son of God. Jesus did not come to earth and die on a cross to help us live a better life or a more comfortable life or a happier life so that all things can just make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. He came to rescue you from the wrath of God that is to come. It's imperative that you understand that you cannot be rescued unless it's by Christ. It's imperative that you understand that you can, you can be rescued while there's still time. Which leads to the second truth that I want us to see this morning. Jesus offers a rescue from the wrath to come. Hallelujah. Jesus offers a rescue from the wrath to come. We can't save ourselves. Somebody has to do it for us. Jesus offers that rescue. And what I'm going to do is, is break down how exactly this rescue takes place so that there will not be any confusion as to what I'm speaking about this morning. So I'm going to do this with three points. First, to be rescued, we must hear the gospel. To be rescued, we must hear the gospel. Now, Paul makes mention of the kind of reception that he had with the Thessalonians. We actually can read about it in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 4, where it says that Paul went into the synagogues there uh, on three successive Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them believe that message. But the majority of them opposed it. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar against Paul. The gospel, or what is known as the good news that Paul proclaimed, may be summarized as follows. All of us have sinned against the holy God, thus incurring God's wrath. God could justly condemn every single one of us to hell. But being a God of great love and a God of great mercy, he sent his own eternal son, Jesus Christ, into this world to bear the penalty that we rightly deserve. He had to suffer death, which is the penalty that God imposed on our sin. And God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as is evidenced by the fact that he raised him from the dead. God's justice was satisfied in that Jesus paid in full the penalty of our sins. He can now be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, according to Romans 3.26. No one can be saved apart from understanding and hearing that message. They have to understand and hear that they are a sinner condemned to hell and that Jesus came to satisfy the wrath of God that rests on them. To be rescued, we have to hear the gospel. Secondly, to be rescued, we must believe the gospel. Hearing the gospel is accompanied by faith. The Thessalonians have received the word with faith towards God. Paul says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Contrary to popular opinion, biblical faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It doesn't mean that you're setting your faith on a shelf and believing in a bunch of old Jewish legends. Rather, biblical faith is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, and his bodily resurrection and ascension to heaven. 
Now some will say, well, you can't prove these truths. You can't prove this, this stuff that you're talking about, that Jesus Christ came and lived and, and breathed and died and, and rose again and, and uh, ascended. You can't prove any of that. They're right. Can't prove it. We don't have video evidence of it. Just like we can't prove that 2 plus 2 is 4. Why do you know it's 4? You accept it by faith. It's not a blind faith, though, that we have. It's, it's not an unreasonable faith. But it's a faith based upon trustworthy evidence. We believe the testimony of people all the time. The testimony of God concerning His Son is far greater than the testimony of any one person. 1 John 5, 9 tells us that. When Paul first preached in Thessalonica, he pointed to the evidence of the scriptures concerning Christ's death and his resurrection. No doubt he took them to Psalm chapter 22, which gives in detail the description of a death by crucifixion centuries before that mode of execution was even known. He also probably took them to Isaiah 53, which predicts with great detail the suffering and death of God's Messiah. When he will make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Both of these texts also imply a resurrection of the crucified Messiah when God will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He, he probably also took in the Psalm 16.10, which predicted that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo any decay. Even beyond the evidence of Scripture, we have further evidence of all of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after the resurrection, over 500 of them, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. In fact, Paul says, you can go talk to these people when he's writing that. You can go talk to these people that saw it. There's also the evidence of dramatically changed lives of the eyewitnesses, including the Apostle Paul. Paul was against the Christian message until the day that he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He changed his life forever. The resurrection truly changes everything. Believing in this message is not just us having this mental assent to the facts as presented in Scripture and by the eyewitnesses. Biblical faith requires an active commitment in which we renounce all trust in our own good works to save us from God's judgment and a total entrusting of us, of ourselves, to Jesus as the only Savior from God's wrath. Genuine saving faith is inseparable from repentance, which means turning to God from our sins. Thirdly, to be rescued, we must turn to God from our idols. To be rescued, we must turn to God from our idols. Before this point, these people had hoped that their idols would somehow satisfy God's wrath. But when they heard the gospel, they threw their idols out. They turned to God alone. They trusted Jesus' death on the cross to rescue them from their sin. In fact, that word turn, that is used when speaking of how they turn to God, is interesting. And often occurs in the book of Acts to describe a proper response to the gospel. Paul describes God's commission to him as, as opening to the Gentiles, opening the Gentiles' eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Acts 26, 18. 
He sums up his preaching by as telling people that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance in Acts 26. Now, I know what happens a lot, especially in America when we get uh, to this point or when we talk about turning from idols. Invariably, someone will say, well, look, um, that's interesting, but I'm not an idolater. I don't have little idols set up in my house. I don't bow down and pray to statues. Because that's what we, we think of when we think of idols. So we think that this doesn't apply to us, that we don't really have any idols that we have to turn from because we don't have any idols. However, the choices are simple. We either serve God or we serve idols. That's the two choices. Yes, an idol could be a statue. However, an idol is actually anything that usurps the rightful place of the living true God in your life. At the root of idolatry is the God of self. Many people leave this God on the throne. They try to use Jesus to get what self wants. So Jesus becomes like their little genie, right? Grants them wishes. Wishes like happiness and health and love, many other things. But to leave self on the throne and to use Jesus as our personal genie is not turning to God from idols, like the Thessalonians did. It just adds Jesus to everything else we're doing. They didn't do that. The Thessalonians didn't say, oh, well, we have all these other things we're bowing down to. Let's just add Jesus. And call it good. They trashed their idols. They turned away from them. And they turned to the living and true God alone. For Jesus to rescue us from the wrath to come. We must agree with God's judgment. That we are sinners against him. And that we deserve his wrath. We deserve every last bit of it. We don't deserve to go to heaven. We deserve to be in hell forever. We must understand and believe that God's son Jesus came to this earth and paid the penalty on the cross that you and I rightfully deserve. Genuine faith is not agreeing mentally with these facts saying, oh yeah, I agree with them. And, uh, uh, I, I understand them, but genuine faith is turning from our false gods and turning to the only true God. And if you've done that, then your life will be demonstrably different. Everyone can see the dramatic change in the Thessalonians because Paul mentions two things that stood out to, the, to, to everybody. And that's where we're going to go with point number three. That's the final thing I want us to see. These two things that stood out. Those who are rescued by Jesus submit to God and they wait for Jesus. Those who are rescued by Jesus submit to God and they wait for Jesus. Have you been rescued? Are you submitting to God and waiting for Jesus? That word serves in verse 10 that we read. It comes from the word bond slave. It's to be a servant. You see, a bond slave, bond slave wasn't free to kind of do as they, as they pleased. If the bond slave says, well, you know what? I think I'm going to have a beach day. They can't just go to their master and be like, hey, I'm going to go hang out at the beach, man, and, and chill out. I'll be back tomorrow. 
Cycle can't work. They belong to their master. They live to do their master's will. To do his bidding. Well, how does that relate to us? Our master gave his life to rescue us from certain doom. We don't, we don't serve him out of obligation. We don't serve Jesus out of obligation. You don't get up on, on Easter Sunday morning and come to church on Sunday morning out of obligation. If you did it, you, get, you got it wrong. If, that, if that's why you come to church, you're, you're doing something wrong. We don't do it out of obligation. We serve Jesus out of gratitude and love because of what he's done for us. Thankfully, he's a loving and gracious master who always has our best interests at heart. Serving our master is not drudgery. It's not, oh, i got to serve Jesus some more. It's supposed to be a delight. We're supposed to actually enjoy this because we love him for what he's done for us. Not only do we submit and serve God, but we are also to eagerly await the return of Jesus from heaven when he will crush all of his enemies and set up his righteous kingdom on earth. Just as a young bride whose husband has gone off to war longs for his safe return, so we've been rescued from God's judgment by Jesus and we long to see his face. As Paul later tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul said, therefore, based on this truth, that I just said to you, encourage one another with these words. We're supposed to encourage people, one another, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to prod one another on with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just on Easter Sunday, but every single Sunday, every day, every time we have contact, we should be encouraging one another with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, he is coming back because if he didn't rise from the dead, he wouldn't be coming back. And we should be excited about it. Those whom Jesus has rescued from the wrath to come submit to him as master. They eagerly look forward to the day of his coming. Those whom he has not rescued live for themselves. They don't give much thought to the day of his coming because they don't believe it's true. And for them, it'll be a day of wrath and judgment unless they repent. In closing, I want to tell you a story. I know that's not me, but I'm going to tell you a story anyway. Imagine with me, if you will, that you are taking a nice Caribbean cruise. On this cruise ship, you have all the amenities you want. Everything, I've never been on a cruise, but I heard they're really nice. But you have everything that you want. The food is all there, the gourmet meal, everything. It's just all the amenities, all the swimming pools. Everybody's enjoying their time. 
They're on the deck, having a great time. This man, he comes along. He's selling sun visors to everyone. He's saying, hey, you want to buy a sun visor? This, this sun visor will help your crews be more comfortable. Help your crews be more enjoyable because it will keep the sun out of your eyes. Because after all, when you're on a cruise ship out on the deck, the sun gets in your eyes, so he's got these sun visors. They don't cost much. They're really cheap. Now let's suppose before the cruise began, terrorists planted a bomb on the ship. It's time to blow up. It's rigged on a timer. There's no way to disarm it. It's going to blow the ship to shreds. And you've just learned that it's a certainty that this bomb will go off. Everyone who does not escape will be hopelessly doomed. Now here's the question. Would you be out there on the deck selling visors so people can have a more comfortable trip? Would you be out there on the deck saying, hey, I'll, I'll buy you a sun visor so you have a more comfortable cruise? Or would you warn people to get in the lifeboat as quickly as possible before they get blown to smithereens? Because that's the world that we're in. We're on the cruise, this world. Judgment is coming. What are we doing about it? Now, I'm not saying that God is a terrorist. However, God is a holy God who must judge all sin or he's not God. And he's given us a warning that he's going to do this. He's going to, he's going to judge this cruise ship that we're on called the world. But he's not, he's not left us no means of escape. We have a way to escape his wrath. Jesus Christ is not a sun visor to make your cruise on this world more comfortable. Jesus is the lifeboat. Yet we constantly are out there talking about Jesus like he's the sun visor. Like, oh, he's going to make your life better. Everything's going to be so great. Jesus is the satisfaction of God's wrath. You have to abandon the ship and get on the lifeboat while there's still time. The point of you getting in the lifeboat is not that it will make you happier. It's not that it's going to make your cruise more comfortable. People on the ship may look down at you and they, they may shout to you, Hey, down there, you got any fancy meals on your little lifeboat? No. Just got some rations. But you have to abandon the ship and get on the lifeboat. Hey, you got any, you got any fancy king-size pillow top beds down there? Nope. It's crowded. It's uncomfortable. But you've got to get on the lifeboat to be saved. If you stay on your fancy room in your fancy ship, you're going to perish. You're going to die. You got any shuffleboard down there? I really like shuffleboard. No. 
but your ship is doomed. You have to flee to the lifeboat while you still can. Do you get the picture? Believing in Jesus does not mean that we sit on the deck in a lounge chair, sipping on our nice, cool drink and thinking to ourselves, boy, I sure am glad I have Jesus. I got, I'm glad I got my Jesus visor on. Make my trip more comfortable. I'm so thankful. No, believing in Jesus means that you take seriously the warning about the coming judgment on this wicked world so that you jump off the cruise ship in the first place and you trust totally in Jesus Christ as your lifeboat and you tell others, hey, there's a coming judgment, people. Jesus is the salvation. Just like the Thessalonians today, you've heard that God has pronounced a wrath to come on this world. You've heard that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins and that God raised his son Jesus from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was acceptable and satisfying the wrath of God. He is coming again. He will come either as your savior or as your judge. You must believe the message and abandon the ship and place your destiny totally upon the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you will be rescued from the wrath to come. And you might be wondering, how can I do this? How do I trust in Christ? Do that by praying something like this. It's not magic, but you can pray, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve your wrath, but I believe you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die and forgive me of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sins and I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to live for him for the rest of your, my life. Thank you for saving me. Amen. It's not magic. To trust in Christ that saves you. It's saying, I'm sick of living on this cruise ship, living for the things of this world that never satisfy. If you said that prayer or something like that, I would I'd love to follow up with you. Asking, you can you can either come forward at the end of the service if you're online. You can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. Word faith to 309-328-3488. If you don't have a smartphone, you can just send me a text message to that number, and that should go through. You can do that in your pew if you want to. Lastly, I want to say this: if you are a believer this morning, hearing this message, please understand. Dear Christian, I say this with all the love I can. Jesus didn't die for you and I to sit on the ship and do nothing. It's not why he died. It's not why we're here this morning. We're not here to sit around and do nothing. One day this world will burn. And 
He's coming back to judge the wicked world. And either you believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, how can we be satisfied to do nothing? How can we be satisfied to have our little Jesus visor on when judgment is coming? We can't remain silent. We can't simply enjoy the fact that we're saved from the wrath to come. We must warn others. Are you doing that? Are you doing that this morning? Let's close the prayer. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Not your typical Easter message. Lord, I thank you and I praise you that your wrath was satisfied and proven by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That wrath that should be on me and other believers is satisfied. Thank you. And Lord, I pray this morning for those that that may not be the case for them. Lord, would you speak to their heart right now? You may be drawing somebody at this very moment. Maybe they stumbled across this on Facebook or something. And you might be reaching out and drawing their heart right now. Lord, I pray that they would realize they will never be good enough to get to heaven. That they will realize that Jesus came to save us from the wrath of the holy God. We're not saved from hell, we're saved from your wrath. So, Lord, I pray for those that may not know you. May you speak to them this morning. And then, Lord, I pray for those of us that do know you. Oh, God, bring conviction to our hearts this morning. Lord, we so often get so excited for Easter. Why? So, well, because Jesus rose from the dead and and that's what our faith is all about. Forgive us, God, for not living it. We truly believe that you rose from the dead and satisfied your wrath. Why are we not warning others? God, help us not to be satisfied. Just knowing Jesus, thinking that that's all there is to it, but we have to warn others of the wrath to come. So, Lord, I pray that if you've spoken to believers, that, that we would respond this morning, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through some sort of renewed commitment, whatever it is, God, that we would, we would respond to your word this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we sing, you be willing to come.